coming up on Man Enough. What happened to me with Apu was that got pointed out to me. Your well-intentioned character that was very funny and made a lot of people laugh and won you Emmys and helped create an iconic, wonderful television show that had unintended negative uh, consequences. And the fact that I was oblivious to it only underlined how much mm, I needed to look at. Right. Am I going to keep doing this voice or not? It wasn't so apparent to me what to do. Especially when I was so defensive at first. How could we not see race when it's there? I think it's because we also chose to not look in the direction where the light was. The more damn about it, it, I was benefiting. Right. Correct. So why would I right. bother to? That's, That's it. Being man enough, what does that mean? It's really manly to mess up, admit you're wrong, and then grow. I couldn't accept that I was evil. So maybe I'm broken, but those broken things could be corrected. Intimacy between a father and a son is me just wanting to like put my head in your lap. I love you, son. You haven't called me a benevolent sexist, but my experience is women are better. Even if it's a positive, it's still not equality. I don't blame men for that. I just blame the system. This is Man Enough. Hey everybody, welcome to the Mad Enough Podcast. I'm Jamie Heath. I'm Liz Plank. We're missing Justin Baldoni today. As many of you know already, he's um, taking a little break. He's in the edit room, but he sends his love. Yes. And all that. What are you doing in pink? I went to Disneyland yep. for the first time in my life on Sunday, and I dressed up all in pink as kind of like Barbie theme, because that's mm -hmm. just what how I dress now. Yep. And there was a little five-year-old girl who was dressed up as a Disney princess, and she came up to me at the parade, and she was like, are you Barbie? And I was like, yes. Yes, I am. Uh, and, yes. and she was just like, wow, I got to be Barbie. Mm -hmm. uh, so that made my entire year. I know that so I'm just waiting it. for more people to, to ask me if I'm Barbie. Um, I'm going to start referring to you as Barbie. Perfect. For okay, Barbie. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. And again, we want you to know that you can actually watch this episode Where? on YouTube okay. for free and see our beautiful faces and so see what we're wearing. So type in man enough, search for it, manenough.com. Yes, man or, enough. There's an uh, amazing channel with all our episodes. All right, Barbie. So uh, we, of course, sometimes talk amongst ourselves. We have different guests on. Sometimes mm -hmm. we've, we have guests that are super super special yeah sometimes we have guests on that are like just grand yes in personality do great work also have um a great work in life in terms of social mm -hmm. issues and things of that nature um we have somebody on really today do. that i think most people are going to be excited really to excited see. i'm who, excited who is that we have hank azaria Whoa! A renowned actor, comedian, and voice artist. His iconic career includes roles such as Mo Sieslak and formerly a Pooh on The Simpsons, which we're going to really dig into. It earned him many Emmy Awards uh, for voice acting and, and beyond acting. He's also the co-founder of Soul Focused Group, which is an amazing organization that he started and, and, and a consulting company that works with leaders across the world to shed their inner biases to create more equal workspaces. So I can't think of a more perfect person mm. to really dig into so many great conversations with today. Let's welcome We on love on. it. Hey. Hi, Hank. Hello. Thank you for that nice intro. Man, we true. are thrilled that you are here. We are fans. I, I can't imagine anyone who doesn't see your face and go like, oh my gosh, this guy's been in this, he's done this, we know his voice from this and this and this. You've done so much work and you've been successful for so long. And not only have you just kept it for yourself, but you've done good work in the world. And yeah. you've also acknowledged about your own um, evolution uh. of how you see the world and how you see masculinity. So we're super excited that you're with us today. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. I appreciate the work you guys do a lot. I'm a fan of the show and uh, I was excited to talk about this stuff with with you all today. Tell us really quickly why. why. Why are you excited to talk about this stuff, whether it be with us or with anyone? Well, I'm excited to talk about it in general to anybody who will, which isn't everyone. You folks do such deep dives and such, uh, and you really get in there, which this topic uh, needs. I probably all topics need. But uh, it's hard to have this conversation without the gray area, without uh, a lot of nuance, mm -hmm. a lot of depth, a lot of acknowledging of imperfection and mistakes and, and, and the feelings that go along with that. So, you know, I feel like I'm in the right place to have this conversation. Sweet. Awesome. Well, Liz, we normally start our show off with a, with a question that we ask our guests. What is that question, Liz? That question is, when is the last time that you didn't feel enough? I knew you were gonna ask this. Um, 
So I've thought about it. <laughs> I mean, I could give you a cheating answer. Well, the 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 real overwhelming last time I felt I wasn't enough in, with, with a capital E mm. was around all this Apu stuff. I mean, I don't know that that's the exact last time, um, but I, I would say the last time I felt I was not enough, uh, what, my son's 14, and occasionally 14-year-olds uh, present challenges that I just get like, I don't know how to handle this. I don't, I don't know. I don't want, I'm afraid of misstepping. And, and especially when he gets emotional and upset, Mm. Um, I feel like I'm not enough. I feel like, oh man, mm. I wish I were better equipped to deal with this right now. Mm. Wow. I don't know what to say or not to say. Um, I don't know whether to, you know, draw a boundary or put an arm around him or not touch him or say, well, from my own experience or mm. leave it be. I, I, those are the moments I feel really profoundly. Um, in fact, it was on the tennis court. My son's a very, very good tennis player. He's aspiring to go as far as he can with it. And he decided to take this summer and really devote uh, to it. First time really, um, really seriously. And he had a wrist injury uh, a couple weeks ago. And he was just coming back from it. And we, his coach is also my teacher, which is fun that we share. We have the same kind of tennis teacher. Around the court getting kind of a joint lesson. And I could tell he was getting real frustrated because his... Um, wrist was, he was just, it wasn't hitting the ball the way he was a week or two before. And, um, coach walked away and he said to me, dad, I think I'm getting burnt out on tennis. Um, I really felt like not enough in that moment. I was mm. like, I don't know how to address this is larger than just tennis. I don't know what to do with this moment. Uh. I said, the hardest part about anything is coming back that first time or two shaking the rust off is always difficult. You know, I know I feel that in my professional life, even when I'm just working out, if I have to take a week off, coming back is the hardest part. Mm. And I could see it didn't help at all, whatever I said. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, coach walked over and I said, okay, uh, tell coach uh, how you're feeling. Um, and uh, he did with tears in his eyes. Mm. And coach said, okay, dad, goodbye. <laughs> um, and so I walked off and uh, I went and worked out at the tennis facility while they were finishing up on the court. And uh, he came back, came out and he went, I feel good. Brian fixed what was going on with my, uh, with my wrist, with my swing and how I was overcompensating. And, you know, and it was a, a big deal because I was watching something happen that could have gone, look, and I'm okay if he wants to quit tennis or he changes his mind about tennis, whatever it is, but um, I just didn't know what to do in that moment. Mm. Uh, and um, I was glad there was someone there who did. I think what that speaks to actually, yeah. which I'm impressed with, is oftentimes in my past, I may have thought that I had the tools and all the skills mm. to deal with something. I don't know if that's because of my ego and masculinity and, you know, and I don't want another person, another man um, directing right. my child. But the fact that you can then say, you know what, actually someone else may be able to deal with this better than I can deal with it, mm -hmm. whether, it be, be, whether it be because they are the coach or their teacher or a friend mm -hmm. or another family member, whatever it is, the fact that you can also feel that you're still enough or that you're not less of a parent because yeah. somebody else can also help. Of course. Is, uh, I think more men can do that. More yeah. fathers can yeah. do that because there are other uncles out there, coaches or whatever we call mm -hmm. them, that can contribute to our, yeah. to our kids. And also, I love to add a detail. What was funny was when he told Coach, Coach said verbatim almost what I said. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure you've noticed this, that right? Uh, <laughs> As a parent, you can say a thing, but that's why you need a text. That's why you need the coach or the right. teacher or the friendly uncle or the friend because it, it's coming from you. It just doesn't, it just mm -hmm. sounds like the same voice that's that right. tells them to mm -hmm. pick up their socks mm -hmm. and, and put the dish away <laughs> and they start to tune it out. That's why um, yeah. That's yeah. why I have some friends sometimes when I want to say yes. something to one of my kids. Yes. I'll be like, call my uncle or my friend and be like, Juan, call Knack. Yeah. Can you tell him such and such? And then he'll receive it. You're right. Uh, Even exactly. Because <laughs> I've, I've spent a lot of my capital on, on stuff I think you should do. <laughs> You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back.
All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. So, hey, let me ask you that um, in the world, there's a lot of different types, right? There's the macho man that is uh, full of armor. That, that's out. That one's out. That one's out. Okay. Just the, that's you know, not me, yeah. Or there's men that are um, championing equality of different genders. And I believe that the world is completely imbalanced, like there's two wings of a bird, and the, the, the one wing that is male is overworked. And then the other wing, which represents females, has not been allowed to fully reach its full potential. So we have this bird flying throughout the world, completely imbalanced. And I think that one wing has to help the other wing fly differently or right, develop differently so that we can flip and do things right. So I'm curious, there's a lot of men that do not fully embrace this idea that this world is imbalanced. Where do you stand on this? How do you see yourself? Maybe where you were when you were a teenager compared to where you were as a young man and where you are now. What you're describing was a real blind spot for me for a long time. I've thought more about this in terms of race in the last eight or 10 years mm -hmm. than in terms of gender issues because that's what was thrust upon me. Mm -hmm. Post Me Too, my eyes were opened a lot. In fact, I was I made note like, hmm, I have blind spots here too that I was not aware of because I was sort of more ahead of the curve than some of my white brothers and sisters because of my experience of the last 10 years. But I was not in terms of, um, as, you know, for lack of a better term, me too, or the issues yeah, you were just gender. describing. What are some of those blind spots that you, you know, what, what are things that you grew uh, you know, around? Uh, never considering the pressure women feel in the workplace, especially. Mm -hmm. You had never really uh, considered that, is what you're saying. No, not right. I always, I, I always was respectful of women in the workplace, more selfishly, like <laughs> meaning I don't want to, you know, get, I don't want to have any drama at work, mm -hmm. you know. So I'm not gonna, for the most part, I'm not going to uh, date there or, or have too much interpersonal stuff going on. But I just looked at it more as uh, hmm. it's just not a good idea for anybody. I didn't really consider how women uh, could really be, uh, are often put in compromising situations. Um, if they're asked out at work, that's a tremendous dilemma. Like, oh, now what? Now, even if they're asked out respectfully at work, it's like now how I answer this has tremendous effect on my career, on my comfort here. Um, I had not thought about that too much mm -hmm. before me too. And because I'm in a work environment with so many, you know, I guess we all are, but, you know, sets and there's so many dynamics, um, gender dynamics. But what about even like being raised in the world as you were in college or, um, or you know, as in high school, how you treated women, how you saw them? Did you see them as objects? Of course, that's maybe too strong because I'm sure you were well advanced enough to not see them as such. But in your actions... Do you feel like you were one that those around you would have said, oh, he he actually sees women as being an amazing equal mm -hmm. uh, gender, treats them as such, is helpful, doesn't expect them to serve him, um, things of that nature. How did you demonstrate that? Yes and no. Okay, good. I had an innate respect for women. I was raised in a house that was very female dominated. Uh, my dad was a workaholic, so he wasn't around much. Yeah. I have two older sisters and, and a mom. My mom passed away last year, but um, I'm sorry to hear that. They're a lot older than I was, uh, 10 and 12 years older than I am. So, you know, I often jokingly say I was raised by, you know, three Jewish mothers. So it's amazing <laughs> that I'm, I'm still standing here. But, and I had a very good rapport with them and saw them as people and um, a lot of respect for them. On the other hand, I'm a product of my time. I, I think it meaning. I look at movies and TV shows that I was raised, and I was really raised by the television and by movies. And even movies from like five years yeah. ago, I can't believe what I'm seeing. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, uh, and I'm like, well, of course, my generation ended up like this with uh, this kind of womanizing James Bond uh, objectification of women. Um, conquests, you know, sexual and romantic conquests. And I mean, even the charming guys in comedy, I mean, you look at even like Ghostbusters, for example, mm -hmm. okay? 
which you wouldn't think of as like a particularly sexist film. I, I don't mm-hmm. think you would. Sure. Yeah. But I was watching that recently and it's like Bill Murray was one of my heroes, still is. But you look at that movie and Sigourney Weaver's just been seriously traumatized by like a beast monster ghost in her house. She's really freaked out. And Bill Murray comes over, doesn't know her, with a fake instrument, a pretext to get in her apartment. He's supposed to be checking the place out to make sure she's okay. And he's relentlessly hitting on her. I mean, relentlessly hitting on her. And it's really cringeworthy. It's like, whoa. And because he's funny and he's Bill Murray, we all go, oh, uh, it's... And that was really the message I got um, from every uh, hero of mine on film and TV is, oh, no, you hit on women. And as long as it's like semi-funny and charming, it's great. And, you know, you try to have the conquest, you know what I mean? Uh, Highly encouraged. I'm a product of that. Yes. I love that you're acknowledging that because you're not making this an individual right failing. You're, you're, you're really pointing out the culture that all, you know, all of us were, were, were raised into. And that's one of the reasons not to make everything about Barbie, but I was in the movie theater. And one of the things that made me really emotional was seeing 13, 14, year old girls watching this movie when when I was 13 and 14 it was American Pie Dude Where's My Car was my favorite movie where Jennifer Garner's boobs again like grow when she's wearing this necklace right the the entire premise and to your 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 point Hank it's men are just just want women for sex right mm-hmm. and we came up with this Bechdel test where in a movie if two women talk to each other about anything else than a man it passes the test that is such a low bar and many mm-hmm. films today that are made um, still don't don't like Oppenheimer doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Mm. So I think it's really, really crucial. And I think it's disarming for us to talk about the messages that we were fed as opposed to making the, you know, sexism and, and, and even racism, right? These sort of personal failings. Yes, we can take individual responsibility. But if we acknowledge you know, the way that the culture plays into it, that is where, you know, change can really happen. Mm. And so I'm excited, you know, to see the shift about, again, I'm thinking if I was, if I was 13 and I watched Barbie instead of American Pie, you know, how differently would I view myself? How differently would I view the world? And that's just one movie, right? That's just one thing. Uh, and that message being repeated in all these these different ways really, you know, wires your, your, your brain. And so I feel for men who are trying to unlearn these things. I think it's hard, mm-hmm. right? when it's been really programmed into you. I would love to, you know, when we asked you the last time, you didn't feel enough, you really referenced this moment around your character in The Simpsons, Apu, and, you know, there was this big controversy that that, that started brewing. Hari uh, Kondabulu uh, did a documentary about this, um, The Problem with Apu, if you want to check it out. It's a really good film. Um, and, and sort of, yeah, drawing attention to the fact that this was a voice that was played by you um, and, and not an Indian American, and that this was a very stereotypical c- character. So, I, I would love for you to, to sort of tell us about what your journey was with getting that criticism, which I, I, I believe at first you, you know, in, in a New York Times interview, you, you described that you were feeling kind of defensive around it and you had sort of trouble at the, at the beginning. But then to the point where you're at now, where you've created an, an organization devoted to helping people unlearn these, these biases, can you, yeah, take us through what that was, you know, for you mm-hmm. at the time? Well, it's really connected to what we were just talking about. Yeah. As far as how, how I was socialized, how I was acculturated um, in, in our in our in our group, in the self focus group, in the Human Solidarity Project, we call it the groundwater. The concept of the groundwater is what's just seeping in to the unconscious, uh, and we're raised in it from zero to seven. Yeah, that's right. And I'm a recovery guy. I'm a sober guy. Uh, I've been in uh, Al-Anon recovery, which is friends and family of uh, alcoholics and, and, and drug addicts for about 25 years. I got sober myself 17 years ago. That's a, Therein Congrats. lies a tale about how I got onto myself um, mm. after about eight years of recovery. That model of, ooh, uh, things are going really wrong, like big problems, like really <laughs> bad, like life-threateningly bad. Mm. You know, Brene Brown talks about the difference between shame and guilt a lot, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, where, whereas shame is I'm bad. You know, I, I don't deserve to be here. I'm an awful person. You know, if I've misstepped with women, I'm a sexist right. jerk. You know, if I misstep 
uh, racially, I'm a racist, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to, hmm, I have blind spots. I was raised a certain way. I, I'm a well-intentioned person. I've heard you guys talk about it, and we talk about it a lot, intent versus impact, intent mm-hmm. versus actual impact. So my intentions could have been very good. I just didn't have enough good information, you know, didn't have the right perspective, didn't have the right context. And that certainly goes with women, uh, as far as I was concerned, and definitely around race. So what happened to me with Apu was that got pointed out to me. It's like, your well-intentioned character that was very funny and made a lot of people laugh and won you Emmys and helped create an iconic, uh, wonderful television show had, uh, and all those things are true about it, but it had uh, some blind spots uh, baked into it uh, in its groundwater that came through me and the writers and the creators that had unintended negative uh, consequences. And the fact that I was oblivious to it only underlined how much mm. I needed to look at. Right. Wow. Um, that, that became the message to me because, so as you say, yes, I got very defensive and upset at first. I was like, well, where, where does this end? And I, and I hear now a lot of um, uh, people say it today. They say it to me, isn't this all silly? It's gone too far. What an over. Where does this end? Can you not do an Irish accent? Can you not do a, you know, a Polish accent? Uh, you're not a policeman. How come you can play police chief Wiggum? I mean, where does this nonsense end? Kind of thing. And that was my first, second, and third reaction. Like I'm a character actor. I do voices. What do you, what do you want from me? You know, uh, to me, it's just another thing I'm imitating. I don't see the difference between my imitating an Indian person or a black person. I'm imitating a, a French person or, a, you know, a German person. So uh, learning that difference um, became uh, important to me. And, and here's where it connects to, uh, to program and recovery. Um, that was my model because I had gotten sober and gone through the Al-Anon program and a few other programs too. It always goes the same way. You come out of denial in some way about something, right? Whether it's your own alcoholism, your blind spots around race or gender or sex, um, your own food addiction, I've been there, uh, whatever, you name it. And then you come out of denial, you look at your part first. Well, what am, what's going on here with me? What am I doing here? And even if in the end you decide, well, my part of this, I think is only 10% maybe of the whole thing. I think somebody else is maybe 90% of this, but you can only really work on your end. So you try to clean up that 10% if that's what it is. Jamie says that all the time. Well, he's right. And then you, you work steps four through nine in the program, step Four is, you know, that inventory. What am I doing here? Who am I? Where was I at fault? Where am I to blame? Um, what's my part? How am I accountable? And step nine is amends. Mm. Now, how do I make this right? How do I uh, make up for it? You know, sometimes that can be 20 minutes. Sometimes it can take you years to, to work through that. I had the professional and personal real dilemma, kind of feed to my fire dilemma. Am I going to keep doing this voice or not? Mm. You know, my, it, it wasn't so apparent to me what to do, especially when I was so defensive at first. Because on the one hand, I didn't want to just uh, bow to what we called then PC pressure. Now there are other words for it, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to fold to the woke mob or right. give in to cancel culture, whatever we want to call it. I didn't, I didn't, but more to the point, I didn't want to just, for appearance's sake, fold because, you know, I I was afraid of criticism or or looking like a bad guy. On the other hand, I certainly didn't want to continue to do harm and and perpetuate a stereotype and hurt people and marginalize people. I really didn't know. And partly why I didn't do Hari's uh, documentary is because I wouldn't have felt safe having that conversation privately, let alone with cameras rolling. Mm. I just was afraid. I, I didn't want to. I was sure I'd misstep. I was sure I would say things that would end up publicly um, hurting me and hurting others. I didn't know what to say. I was still learning. But because of, you know, again, program, I knew that that's okay. I need to keep my mouth shut and my ears open now and go learn about things. So I started going to seminars um, and started reading and started talking to people. 
Uh, and these are conversations why I had never had before. I don't think I'd ever had a conversation about race with anybody before. Wow. Except, you know, in college, in a class, yeah. right. you know, where I was mostly just taking it in as an intellectual exercise. Right. And then that started striking me as part of my, um, we don't love the term white privilege, not because it isn't accurate, but because it tends to trigger white people, mm -hmm. triggered me at first. And it creates too easy an out. White privilege. I'm not privileged. I didn't grow up with any silver spoon in my right. mouth. That's not what the term means. We prefer relative advantages. Mm. Um, but uh, I, I realized one of the main uh, relative advantages or privileges I enjoyed around with is never having to think about that stuff. Never, ever once. Didn't, didn't impact me. It's why I didn't take a pause when I did the voice of Apu or others, because it didn't occur to me that there would be any kind of impact beyond either a laugh or not a laugh, a successful show or not a successful show. And as I started getting more of an, a picture, which was a multi-step, there were few, many key moments of it along the way as the coin started to drop on what reality was here. I started uh, being more able to make the decision. And a lot of my message is go through that journey. And if you want to come to me for help on my organization, we're here. Mm -hmm. We're a very safe place to have this conversation. But at least have the information, know the real history of the United States, the 1619 version of the history of the United States. Know about the groundwater, as I mentioned before. Know how you might have been socialized and acculturated to have real blind spots around all this. And then once you know that, then you can make your own decision about the voice you want to do or the joke you want to make or the, the script you want to write or how you do it. So I mentor many, many seminars. Um, and one of them was at the People's Institute, which has been doing this kind of seminar for years. And uh, I'm my facilitators, one was Dustin Washington, who you guys are going to talk to in a bit. You folks are going to talk to him a bit. Pardon me. Shouldn't say guys. Um, <laughs> I say guys all the and, time, by the way. <laughs> so, okay. I'm glad to hear it. But yeah. that one I have, I, I try to be my own. It's that hard. One, it's really, hard. That's stuck in there. Yeah. The, that it's one. old. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, their approach was so compassionate and loving um, that I was really drawn uh, to Dustin. And to, and to Bonnie, who were my leaders. And they ended up breaking off not long after that and forming the Soul Focus Group. I joined them and we created the nonprofit and called the Human Solidarity Project, but that's just mm. semantic. So anyway, their approach was so um, loving and inclusive while being no less truth-telling, it mattered to me a lot. Because in some of these seminars, I got a lot out of all of them, but sometimes I got kind of targeted. You know, I was like a rich, white, famous guy and I'd get... Um, kind of uh, beat up a bit um, uh, in these conversations. And maybe rightly so. I'm sure I misstepped. I'm sure I, I, I made mistakes. I'm sure I said the wrong thing or asked insensitive questions or whatever it is I did. But I really was trying to learn, you know, and um, I appreciated uh, their loving approach. Let's, and I wanted, and I, I felt like a lot of other white people would too. And that's why I wanted to amplify them and join them. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I have a few responses, not even responses, mm. but uh, a few thoughts to share. Hank, I say this lovingly. There's about five minutes there where you shared some thoughts where we didn't interject much. Oftentimes on the podcast, people can be long-winded. They can share something and then Liz and I have to interject and keep it. I think that segment right there demonstrates maybe more than any other guest we've had what a man is. <laughs> What a wow. fucking man is. Let me tell you why. Because <laughs> I had chills while you did. What I heard the whole time was accountability. I didn't hear you point any fingers. What I heard is you acknowledge what it required for change, that you were not ready for change in the beginning. I heard you mention program, which I too am part of, which I would have known without had you not said that because of how accountability, how accountable you are. <laughs> Your desire to um, look under the hood so that you could then be better, so that society could be better, um, so you don't repeat the same patterns. Like this is what, why, there are so many people that I know that have been, maybe not in my inner circle, but at least in my outer circle, that are um, good, decent people who will not look under the hood because of defensiveness, because of ego, um, and will acknowledge they had blind spots, but not give a shit to then see it differently. 
It's one thing if someone, if there's a hole in the ground and you keep tripping on it because you don't see the hole, all right, I, I could be forgiving of that. But if you tell me I see the hole now, but now you're not making any efforts, any efforts to walk around it, I mean, now you've lost me. Right. And I feel like we do that a lot. So I feel what you are doing, I know for sure your son will be like yourself, but in a way better version of you because he has you to demonstrate that very thing you just did for the last five minutes. Your son, boys, other people see that and see a confident man, successful, white, privileged. I like the other term you used, which was relative advantage. 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 Um, but like, there it is. There was nothing weak about it. <laughs> it was strength. It was like, that dude is super confident mm -hmm. and acknowledged where some change could be done. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing in the way that you did. Uh, thank you for doing so. Thank you. That's high praise indeed. You know, I've heard you talk about, I, I was listening to your segment with Emmanuel Acho, um, and you were talking about, uh, uh, I've lost my thought, but some of these same issues. And yes, the, the ability to, um, yeah, look at what your part was. Yeah. And then, and then share it. And you're right. I mean, you know, my son's already a lot more emotionally mature than I am. And of course um, he is. Of course he is. I think uh, if my wife's in, in one of us as well, um, Jamie. Yeah. And we really try to practice the principles with him. And uh, we're already struck by how much more emotionally mature he is, certainly when we were that age. I often joke with my wife, gosh, I wish, I wish, I wish we were, we got to raise me. Um, <sighs> things would have been, would have been different. But um, thank you. I really appreciate that. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. You know, I'm interested to know your son, how, who's 14, someone had said to me, Jamie, you believe in change. Okay. You believe in being different. You believe in equality of all people. You say you're about this. If your kids, your own kids, are not leaders in this area, I don't necessarily mean that's a profession, but if their friends are not better because of your kids, then what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> then stop claiming this stuff. So um, I'm curious and 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 that I want to put the pressure on my son who's twenty now and my other one that's seven. Um, I don't got Ali, I don't want to put that pressure on them. But I think it's just in the, as you said, the groundwater. How do you see your 14-year-old how um out in the world? Of course you're proud of him. Of course he's he was crying in public at a tennis lesson. I think that's great. I mm -hmm. would have never cried at 14 years old in front of my coach. That, that would have showed weakness. So the fact that he was comfortable doing that is is one demonstration there. But what would you say about your son that you think is different about how you were at 14 and how he is now out in the world? I remember what I was going to say. And part of what continued me on this journey and motivated me uh, with this to approach this Apu stuff thoughtfully with accountability and programmatically, as we like to say, mm -hmm. is what am I going to say to him? What am I going to say to him? I have to look him in the eye. Somebody, he's going to be old enough, which he kind of is now, to understand this one day. He was like four when it all started. But so that was important to me, number one. Um, and the other thing I want to say that reminded me of the Acho conversation you had is uh, Madi, one of the guys you work with, he says, people don't, grow in front of you. you you said a very similar thing you plant seeds and and you let them digest it mm. and that's a lot of how these fellows work as well mm. uh with how yeah it, this around drinking around gender issues around emotion um race absolutely race um my greatest friend is a parent. My, my, my sponsor actually said this to me, he, he had two boys. Um, your biggest uh, friend as a parent is step 10. Step 10 is you take this daily inventory and you make amends for what you, you need to do. And a lot of my trip as a parent at first was like, I gotta do this perfectly. I gotta do it right. I gotta get it right. I would misstep and I would project, you know, into his future of him being an alcoholic lying in the gutter when he was 25 because of how I screwed up today, mm. you know? And I got, I got the lesson I got told, you know, it's actually better to screw up, own it and apologize and make amends to him over it and do better than it is to never screw up in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because if you never screw up in the first place, what message are you sending then? Like mm -hmm. have to be perfect all the time? Right. Um, 
So, and there's been many, many times, I think this answers your question. And I think the thing I'm most proud of as a father uh, and what I want to impart to him the most is that. I'll come to him. I just did it the other day. I, I, oh, I just nag, I nagged him. Remember, I got a but, 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 and it was like the third time that it got said to him that night by, by me and his mother. And he just looked at me like, oh God, he just gave me that teenage look. Um, the next day I said, you know what? I went too far there. I succumbed. Your mom was a little uh, nervous. I could tell she was in that kind of mood she gets where, but we didn't need to take that to you. I didn't need to, I didn't, you need to hear the third time that night. Mm-hmm. And I'm really trying not to do that again. And if I can tell, tell mom's in that mood, I'll deal with it with mom, not with you. Uh, that wasn't the greatest by me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't even think that stayed with him and bothered him. But the times I've done that, the way, the image I have is I can see his shoulders lower. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I can just see like I've just removed the fact that because growing up in the house I grew up in, which was highly dysfunctional. Anything my mom or dad did or didn't do was never as bad to me as never owning it. Never saying, you know, dad screwed up. Oh, man. Uh, sorry. You know, uh, mom was rough there. She shouldn't have been. Never, one, not one time did I ever get that. And that would have made a big difference to me. Wow. Um, so I think that more than anything else is what I'm. Beautiful. I, I wow. want to send him out in the world with, you know. Thank you. Yeah. I'm also in a, in a 12-step program. So I love that you're bringing this, you know, as uh, including this in the conversation. And I. I was just listening to you talk, you know, about the steps and and even the first step of recovery is actually admitting that you're helpless, right? And we don't do that with these issues, right? I think that, again, it's you're doing this, right? You're being racist, you're being sexist. And I see the way that, you know, I think a lot of young boys, I'm curious if, if your son is sort of affected by this. I think a lot of boys are growing up feeling like they're the problem and feeling like they're responsible for something that they didn't really do, right? Um, Because they didn't create the the, the world that we live in. They certainly live in it and to a certain extent, you know, benefit from it. But I'm I'm curious, you know, and, and your point about accountability is so good, right? So how do we how do we talk to young men about not feeling responsible, but being accountable, right? You're not responsible for having built the sexist world that we live in, but you're accountable to trying to change it. Because that's a, a uh, there's a subtlety there, right? Well, just, Hank, I'm interested in what you'd say, but can I just say one thing about it? Yeah. Because I, um, I agree with everything you said. There's one thing I would change mm-hmm. when I say it. Yeah, I don't like to say two boys that you're not responsible for creating the world because I do think that we are, we continue to perpetuate it. So, so long as I'm perpetuating it, I'm responsible for creating the world because the world is changing every decade. So I hear the point that you didn't, you're not responsible for building the found, Mm -hmm, the foundation, the the foundation of it, right? The groundwork, all that. But um, it would not be here and look the same if the last 20, 30 years, my friends, my peers, Hank included when you were had blind spots, but if you didn't, and every single day we did things differently, it would be a different world. So with my boys, I'm like, I I don't want to hear the excuse of that you didn't create this world. Mm -hmm. Yes, you are, unless you're doing something different. You're creating the culture in your friends. You're creating the culture in your club over here and your basketball team at school. Every little world is a microcosm of the bigger world. But so you are a part right. of creating it. But isn't that more accountable? Like you're accountable to, 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 to trying to change it, right? You're, you're not responsible for creating it. You're responsible for changing it, right? Well, would that be the kind of the, the Sure, the difference I, I there? accept that. Yeah, that we're responsible for changing it, but we are perpetuating it, which means creating yeah. it as well, unless we are changing yeah. it. Yeah, I, I guess... I I like that framing because I I and again I love that you're making us think about all these things. I've never never thought about it as like as 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 a recovery, you know, from sexism, recovering from, you know, um these sort of old ingrained ways of living. But I do think that there's a backlash right now because there's a lot of politicians who are banning books and banning certain curriculum that's anti-racist, that, that's anti-sexist, because they're saying these kids feel guilty. These, these these kids are feeling shame. And maybe it comes back to the difference between shame and guilt. Maybe we can teach them how to feel, you know, maybe guilt 
but not shame, right? Not because if you start with you're a bad person and, right. and people don't want, that's not an invitation. And, and I think I'm talking also more about ch- children here, right? Like how do you get children excited <laughs> about, about social change as, as opposed to feel bad for it? You know, Th- does any of that make sense? Sure. Uh, makes more than sense. Yeah, I, I really wrestle with this every day. I mean, I give this a lot of thought. Uh, and, we, and it takes practice, you know, it, it's, there are not easy, easy answers to this. And I do talk to kids. I went to my son's school, in fact, and, and, and gave a talk about my Apu journey, as I call it. And, and I start off with, okay, everybody, this is a bunch of, uh, uh, I guess it was fifth through eighth graders and a lot of parents and teachers. So I'm going to start off by saying this, no one here is bad because they're white. Okay. Let's just start right there. Um, Because especially you mentioned a backlash There's a New York City private school thing going on now where there's like a lot of pushback. And I'm tired of being told I'm bad because I'm white. I'm tired of my kids being told they're bad because they're white. I'm not so sure that's what they're being told, but I guess that's what the message is coming through. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I want to start by disarming that. And a lot of how I feel I'm valuable in this conversation um, is I really do remember what it's like to have those thoughts. It wasn't that long ago for me. I think the best way to talk about it is to give my own example. You know, I talk about, you know, what I did discover about Apu, I got, I get specific about, I was raised in a culture where, where racial humor was just humor. That was just one of the flavors of comedy. You know, if you saw stand up, he would talk about the difference between New York and LA and, 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 uh, and cats versus dogs. And he would do some, uh, racial stuff and, uh, and then you have your couple of drinks, you go home, right? Um, Don Rickles, uh, tremendous example. Um, now, I grew up idolizing Peter Sellers. Uh, if you don't know who that is. Of course, uh, Pink Panther. Uh, right. And so and he did so. silly French voices, uh, Inspector Because you had Doug Bait. Yep. Does your Doug Bait, exactly. <laughs> and he was Dr. Strangelove in the great cubic film, silly uh, <laughs> German accent. And he also did a movie. Uh, in the 60s with Blake Edwards called The Party, where he played an Indian guy named Harundi V. Bakshi. And a very, um, as silly as Clouseau, I'm not going to do the accent, as, sil- as silly as Clouseau and, 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 and genius as they, uh, and, and as uh, Strangelove was, he did a similar thing with the Indian accent there. He was in brownface for this movie. Mm. And I found it, now, to my 15-year-old worshiping of a vocal genius like that, and a great actor and comedian, and I was aspiring to be that, I made no difference as a white kid in Queens between Clouseau and Strangelove and Harundi Bakshi. They were all just brilliant Peter Sellers characters to me, even with him being in brownface. So when I'm at the microphone, not that long later, maybe 23 years old, and a producer says to me, hey, can you do an Indian accent? Uh, Peter Sellers pops into my mind, and I just my impression of Peter Sellers comes out. Okay. And I mean, talk about groundwater, right? Talk about what got in there without any other thought as what we're told is fine and acceptable and very, very funny. And out it came through me. Well, what I didn't realize ironically was that when Peter Sellers did that voice at the time, Indian people were very upset by it. Very upset. It was a very marginalizing, uh, silly uh, portrayal. Um, in fact, further irony. Um, the character of Apu is named after uh, films called the Apu Trilogy, Indian films called the Apu Trilogy, made by a brilliant uh, Indian director back from that time in the 50s and 60s called Sunjit Ray. Peter Sellers and Sunjit Ray were very good friends. They were working on a project together. And when Sunjit Ray had no idea that Peter Sellers was doing this movie, when the movie came out, Sunjit Ray was so upset and like personally offended and couldn't believe that Peter Sellers just like blew his people up, just like just trashed his people essentially mm. with what is a very funny portrayal, by the way. It's similar to Apu. It's like this funny and lovingly done and well-intended, but very insulting mm. on a bottom line level. So, and that's what Apu's named after. And that's the history of all that. So I was in fact perpetuating a stereotype and doing, doing harm. And as you said earlier about the whole avoidance, right, Jamie? So once I'm aware of the whole, now it's on me to, to step around it. You know, I don't vilify myself for my first 25 years of that character. I did the best with the tools I had. I, I really didn't know. And that's why I forgive my mom and dad too for never 
owning their mistake. They didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't realize. They they did the best they could with the tools they had. It wasn't good enough in many ways. And I, I suffered because of what they didn't know. So I can't think of a better way to describe it without that example. And then I say to folks, whether they're young or old, now I know some of this is unrelatable because most of you probably don't do the voice of Apu on the same, <laughs> but do you have a similar, where in your life did you not consider some of the impact of stuff that you take uh, for granted? And I go, we, we go into a lot of what those examples might be in our seminars, you know, on social, political, economic levels, like where, you know, where might you be in all that? And we try to bring people in, you know, like, how is this hitting you? You, you there. Yes, sir. You're you, sir. How does this, you are you push, you feel pushback on this? Do you accept it? Do you see yourself in it? Do you feel like it's true, but it doesn't relate to you? Where are you in it all? We call it giving your accurate location, which requires a safe environment. Yeah. The difference between holding yourself accountable and like beating yourself up, right? People want to think of themselves as, as, as good people. And so that's one barrier to change. But then I think the other barrier is like, oh, I'm a, I'm a horrible person. Oh my God. I'm, you know, and, and, and living in that shame. And actually both are bad. They're not productive. Yes. <laughs> there is a healthy sense of shame, I believe, enough where you feel um, like I never am going to do that again. Yeah. I feel so disgusted with my act for me in my case, in my life, in my history, where I was unfaithful and blew up my marriage because of my, and, and, and those around me, and, and it hurt friends of the family because of the, you know, you set one thing on fire, it sets a whole bunch of houses in close proximity to that one house that you caught on fire. I feel shame that I was the cause of that destruction. I should have known better. But at the same time, the shame that keeps you stuck where you feel less than as a human and that you can't keep moving and get out of it, mm -hmm. that's dangerous, of course, and that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a health, healthy sense of it that um, propels us to be better, you know? This is what I think exactly what our young boys need. Yeah. Is these types of conversations, all people, yeah. um, so that your son, my sons, the world, our listeners... Um, can just mm -hmm. be comfortable talking about it. Yeah. We don't have to have all the answers. Um, we're searching for the answers. I love that you're using blind spots and I appreciate it in this context. I have blind spots as well. I know that I have used them as I get a little bit more wise, sometimes as an excuse. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, and again, Hank, forgive me because I'm not saying this about you, but it's a term that I have heard many people use almost as a, um, it's like a woke statement. I had blind spots. Well, also, can I point out what and, it's also an able if we're going to, you know, in the spirit of this conversation, it's also the disability community yeah. does not uh, wants us to come up with a better word. Um, yeah. So well, we, well, aside from, well, yes, okay, yes so, the, aside from people that are actually blind, I know that have the feeling, but um, I didn't even didn't yeah. consider that. I know. There, 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 there's always, a, there's always more. There's yes, always more. more now, I personally don't have an issue. With now that. I have a I blind spot around the term blind. Like, I know. <laughs> I have an argument about that one uh, because I think blind, the definition of blind does mean you can't see. Well, some so. blind people can't see. Anyway. Uh, it's yeah, not, but I just mean blind. I'm not, I'm not referencing blind people. I'm talking but about But it's like a negative, right? Anyway, we, we can, we well, can. Blind means to me can't side. see. That's all it means. So I, I have spots I can't see, but in any case, uh, um, I, I, I'm okay. I don't mean to argue with it's you. It's okay. We, I, have, I we, we can deep dive but, on but, it later. But um, I hear on that, Jamie, but you know, but just one thing it's uh, look, I'm speaking personally. They really were. No, I believe I was you. really clueless. And, but, and, but let me ask and you, I, Hank, you I, and clueless, I agree with you. Once, but, once you're clue full, it is, you are accountable. <laughs> but here's I mean, the other question you know, to it. Yes. Yes. And this is not directed at you again, but you, we can say I was clueless. The next question is, should you have been clueless? How could you're you exactly not, right? How could you have not seen as a man in the world that women on your shows have le less privilege than you? How could you not see that? How could I not see it, that? It, how could we not I see agree. race when it's there? I think it's it's we had blind spots, but it's because we also chose to not look in the direction where the light was mm -hmm. because it did not benefit us or because it was I don't want to do that. So yes, we had blind because we didn't choose to open up the book and read the fucking definition. Well, it's not that we were blind, we were even yeah, more, closing our eyes. Maybe that. And, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll be even more damn about it. I was benefiting. Right. So Correct. why would I right. bother to? That's, you know, that's I'm not, it. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's beyond. It, you know. That statement right there you yes. just said is including 
blind spots, right. forgive the term, but we've used it, so I'm going to use it for the moment. Um, we've had spots where we couldn't see. Still didn't use the term because I'm aware. <laughs> it's working. Um, and also chose to not look at it. Right. 100%. It yeah. doesn't take me off the hook. Yeah. What do they say? You know, ignorance is not a defense, right? Ignorance of the law is not a yeah, defense, right? That's right? right. I right, mean, right. Not, but you know, there's an interesting story that I have that speaks to this exact thing, I think. Early on in all this, as I was just, one of the conversations, many conversations I had, there was this white woman who my, my wife was uh, um, meditation partners with in a class called White Awake about being using meditation to be more uh, as a tool uh, uh, to be more mindful in this area of race in society, mindfulness in society. Okay. And I had a lot of conversations with her and she was hipping me uh, to my, my, my privilege, my relative advantage, you know, things that she had made me aware of an article called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, which is a wonderful Great article, one. very iconic one. Yeah. yeah, you know this one, yeah. List 37 ways that uh, white people usually don't consider that they, uh, that they are advantaged. A couple that stuck out to me were, I've, as an actor, I've moved everywhere. I must have moved 60 mm. times in my life. I never worried about the neighborhood I'd be in. Would I be accepted or not? Would it be safe? That's a very um, white person uh, take for granted thing. Mm. You know, uh, I never worry when my son enters any new environment, school or otherwise, he's mm. going to have a problem because the color of his skin. I don't worry about it. Right. These are things that people of color do worry about. And there's 35 others. Um, that are listed in this article. So she's just making me aware of um, of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of wrapping my brain around it because it took some wrapping my brain. I'm like, oh yeah. And then she said, now, do you see how, if that's racism, let's call it racism. Do you see that that has hurt you? And I was like, um, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> haven't I been benefiting from it? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just wrapping my brain around, it was good for me. Uh, how was it bad for me? And she kind of looked at me very sweetly and said, well, if you're ignoring all that, aren't you lacking compassion? I was like, oh yeah, mm. didn't think of that. And that, you know, as we say sometimes in program, right, the thousand mile journey from the head to the heart, yeah. um, that, 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 registered on me intellectually in that moment, that sounds true and accurate. Mm. But it took me a couple of years to have that really settle in to yeah. my heart. Like, man, I'm kind of numb and uncaring in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, and, and and to speaking to what you said, Jamie, like, which enabled me to not think about impact of race or characters or think about how women have it harder than I do in the workplace and elsewhere or anything. I'm like this kind of numb, competitive being, you know, who, um, and it serves you if you're going to compete a lot. Yeah. I cannot accept anymore that we don't see, th see things. Mm -hmm. I accept that I had so many spots that I could, <laughs> places that I didn't see. I do know that, which is why I'm a little um, compassionate on myself. I am less compassionate in a generation now where there's lights everywhere. Hmm. There are people wait, raising flags, waving the flags everywhere. You have to deliberately not look. So blind spots to me don't work. That's, 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 an ex, that's something that our generation can use a lot less today. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm a compassionate, I get it. It's because even if the parents aren't giving it to our kids, it's around. You can't go to school. You can't walk down the street anymore and not see something if they follow TikTok or anything mm -hmm. and not see someone waving a flag to be aware of something. Yeah. So when they say to me, I didn't know any better, I'm like, yeah, you chose not to know any better. Mm -hmm. You're listening to the Mad Enough Podcast. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Mad Enough Podcast. Let's talk about all this stuff. Because of this stuff, you now want to do better in the world and you want to do differently. So you have and are partnered with people that have an organization. The Human Solidarity Project, the Soul Focus Group is what existed. I came in and formed the nonprofit arm called the Human Solidarity Project. And 
essentially, I found their approach to, we don't like to call it anti-racist because we feel that's not covering it. The way they describe it is they got really good over many decades at fighting racism and not very good at ending it, not very good mm -hmm. at finding solutions. So it, it's more solution-based and inclusive and human solidarity is the goal. What do you create as opposed to what are you trying to tear down? I found that approach so loving and and so you know recovery based and so connected that I wanted people who couldn't afford. It. I mean, these guys get good fees to go do it as well they should. But if folks can't afford it, whatever the monetary block might be, I want to su to supply uh, money uh, for, the, for that to reach whoever was seeking it and. Then they said, well, if you're going to do that, you can't just throw money at us. You've got to join us and mm. learn to be a facilitator as well and be able to uh, share your story and have that be part of what we're doing. And that's what I did. What I love is like everything you've shared today, all of the wisdom and, and, and learnings wouldn't have happened you know, if you had, I mean, they happened because of, of, of a mistake, right? And, 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 and something that you decided to, you know, I, I think there's a version of your life where you stayed, you know, had the first response and that would have been the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth response, right? You would just continue to sort of build that armor and, um, and resist, you know, w the change. And I think it's a really important thing to highlight, right? That these moments are hard. I'm sure it was the hardest maybe the hardest moment of your oh, life. It was hard. Yes. It was a hard Dark. few years. Yes. Hmm. And look at the light that 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 can happen if you're if you're willing to walk through that darkness. You know, early, early on, a bunch of years ago, there was an opportunity to change the voice. Like they were gonna hire an Indian actor to do the mm. voice, which I was all for. To be on full disclosure, not to do the right thing. I was just I was starting to get heat and I just want didn't want the heat. You know what I mean? And so they were going to do that. And then in the end, they did not do that for a variety of reasons. And I often look back at that, like, wow, if we had just changed the voice. And this was way before the documentary ever came out. I think if we had changed the voice back then, we would have avoided a lot of the controversy, mm -hmm. maybe even short, you know, short. And, and on the one hand, believe me, there were many, many days where I would have preferred that. It was hard. You know, I was, I'm not a suicidal guy. But there were, um, you know, many days where I was like, man, I would even say to myself, I'm not a suicidal guy, but I'd rather mm. not go through this day I'm about to face today. I'd really rather not. Um, and uh, so, but I look back at that, like if I could go back in time, would I do that? And, you know, as hard as all that, those, knowing that I still have to go through those hard years, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't have gotten here. I wouldn't have learned what I learned. I wouldn't have connected with Dustin and and Madi and them, I, who are like my brothers now. And I wouldn't have been in a position to share this work with people and be of service in this way. I'm so glad that I was actually sober from alcohol before all this happened. Right. Uh, because I swear, yeah. although the thing itself one sip of wine one night when I was ang angry or hurt or feeling sorry for myself over this, I'm sure I would have tweeted out something um, that would have uh, mm. made things a lot worse for myself wow. um, and other people too. That kind of angry, defensive, like you were talking about, doubling down, tripling down. Wow. Um, and so I can't even, for a lot of reasons, I can't separate my you know, substance recovery from this yeah. kind of recovery. Wow. Uh, they're intertwined, you know. Thank goodness that you were sober. Well, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, yeah that definitely would have, um, yeah. I'm sure, added so much to it. And um, look at you now. I think that those things, those days that you spoke of, and something that I very much believe in, and um, based on a quote from Abdul Baha that I that I focus on is, you know, if you're going to travel on a ship, you want to travel on a ship with a captain that's been through the worst storms because yeah. you mm -hmm. know that they've learned how to navigate them. And you don't want to fly in a plane with a pilot that, you know, um, has never been through a windstorm or a thunderstorm. You want someone who's had to navigate the trials and tribulations of those things. Um, likewise, I think anyone who's been through stuff and have succeeded in getting through it and having the perseverance, the wherewithal, the accountability, the skill set is one, the faith to get through those things are the ones that I want to ride with. I want to walk with those people. 
So you've been through some stuff um, and you face those things. And now I think you're able to offer humanity perspective that you never would have otherwise. Yeah, and we have a funny slogan about that in Al-Anon Recovery, which is, uh, God doesn't give me anything I can't handle. It's just that sometimes I wish you didn't have so much faith in me. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly right. <laughs> Such oh, a good one. Um, Should we bring, um, Dustin is gonna, is, is he, he's gonna join along with you, right? Uh, here, Dustin, come on in. This is Dustin Washington. How you doing, Dustin? Good, how are you? Oh, we're good. So you're partnered up with Hank there, huh? I am. Tell us about yourself. What are you doing? That's, that's a big question. Um, you know, in, in terms of why we're here today, you know, we work together with the Soul Focus Group and the Human Solidarity Project. You know, the, I mean, the truth is our relationship goes much deeper than that. You know, as Hank talks about recovery, I'm also a recovery person. Hank is my sponsor in the, uh, adult children of alcoholics. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, as we... You know, Hank introduced to you the concept of groundwater in terms of the work we do around race and racism and oppression. But really, groundwater is the essence of all the healing work we do. And for, for us, it's what we found to be the missing component in the conversation around race and racism, the missing component and what's going to move us forward to really creating solutions. As we keep having these conversations from a conscious-minded place, while we're having some good analysis around the problem of race and racism, you know, if you look at, you know, outcomes across every system that exists in our country, we could see those outcomes getting worse because we haven't dealt with what's in the groundwater, subconscious programming of well-intentioned people, or sometimes, you know, not well-intentioned people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, man, mm -hmm. well articulated. Yeah. You're dedicated to this work, clearly. Yeah. I am. I am. You know, I, I, I'm dedicated to this work, you know, not just the work around race and racism, but what, what underlies everything we're doing is we're dedicated to creating a new world of love and, and human connection. That's what really propels us. So racism is, you know, definitely a barrier to us being able to be in authentic connection. You know, one of the things we were talking about at dinner last night, sitting in a restaurant, you know, looking around at every other table, there wasn't another table where there was a white man and a black man sitting together. And so what racism has done is created this artificial barrier that now lives in our subconscious programming that keeps us from having the level of authentic human connection that we ought to be able to have that allows us to come together to solve problems that we should have solved a long time ago as a human family. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, I, I love, again, the language of, of recovery. And Hank, you spoke to this, of, of growing up in a, in a dysfunctional environment that's, you know, often very much at the root of a lot of recovery programs. Growing up in a racist society is, in a, in a way, growing up in, it, within dysfunction. I'm curious, how does racism prevent friendships between white men and black men or, you know, men of color and, and, and white men? Because you know, look at what you've done with one friendship and sort of the incredible love that you've injected in the world and, and how many people you've helped. So so for people who are listening, yeah, you know, thinking about that example at dinner um, where, where we, maybe we don't have enough of those friendships, what are men sort of losing, you know, by not having those close, intimate friendships across um, racial lines, if you want to call it that way? I don't know if that's the right term. No, that's, a, that's a really, really good question. You know, Liz, I would start off by saying that First and foremost, racism inhibits us, limits us from having the healthy relationship with ourselves. Because we get a host mm -hmm. of messages from a very young age that are racialized messages that are in fact not true mm -hmm. about our worth, our value, our place of belonging, who we are in this world, um, what we're capable of in this world that really limits us being our authentic, natural expression. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. If I have an unhealthy relationship with myself, I'm not going to be able to engage with someone even of my own race right. in a healthy relationship. Right. right. And, you know, of course, we know that race in and of itself is a lie because it was something that was socially and politically constructed. Right. So in and of itself, you know, defining myself by a race or defining another human being by a race in and of itself is dishonest. Um, on it, on its face, even though we know we live very much in a racialized world. Which we do a deep dive in in the seminars, by the way, if that doesn't make sense to some people. It can be a daunting uh, concept at first, but sure. that is the truth and, 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 and we can back it up. But anyway. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. I love that you guys are doing this work. It's I awesome. Love, I love that you guys are doing it together. I know that there's other partners as well and people involved in it. But um, right now on screen, I got a yeah. white man and a black man <laughs> who are talking about how to heal the world, um, an organization that's dealing with race. We also talked about gender and, you know, how um, 
the ill effects on the humanity that has and how we can be better as men. It makes me proud to be a man when I see other men <laughs> look like me. You both look like me because I got a white mother and a black daddy, so you both look like <laughs> me. It makes me proud to be a man in those you know, and not, and I don't want to say ashamed in the way that we talk about shamed, but there are times when I'm just yeah. um, ashamed of men who are continuing to look away at the light. And I appreciate the two of you who are looking at the light and trying to be better and then help others to be better. Can I just say to what you're saying around men, because I think this is really important Please. that we can't have the whole conversation, the holistic conversation around race and racism without talking about um, the impact on gender masculinity and what has been done to us as men that affects how we show up for us to have the healthiest conversation around creating a new world a new world based in love we've got to be able to dig deep i feel men hungry for this um but you know the way in which we're having so many conversations across our society is just pointing the finger using shame like you said not being vulnerable right. enough mm. to allow other people to really open up and really put the pain that they're feeling on the table because all of us are feeling you can't grow up in this society this dysfunctional society liz like you just talked about without feeling all this stuff yeah. right. and we just have to move away from wanting to blame or judge or you know cancel anybody else and really create a space where we can just be vulnerable and real love 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 beautiful wow. liz, come on we now. are so happy this is so great <laughs> we're gonna we move, over, go on. move over move into our rap section yeah last question um what does it mean for you to be man enough? Be present, mm. be fully present, warm, open. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, and I would say to be centered within myself, all of who I am, and allow myself and others to experience all of who I am. Wow. Yes. Damn. This is why we do this show. Yeah. This is why, so we can have these conversations and talk to people like y'all. Um, thank you so much, yeah. Justin. I'm so glad you joined thank you. The, the, the tail thank end of you. this. And and Hank, honestly, really, um, been a fan of yours, but the truth is I don't give a shit about your accolades. I don't care about all that stuff. You know what I mean? When you die and when we're all sitting around and talking about you, it ain't going to be because you got this many Emmys and this and all the work that you did in the acting skill. It's going to be like, what did he mean to the world and how did he move it? How, what did he do for his boy? And um, what did he do for Dustin and those around? And I know now spending time with you, like this is a dude I'd walk down the street with and want to talk to and hang out with. So thanks for showing us and those that listen to us, your, your spirit and your heart. Thank you so much. Right back at you. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I really want to get this word out there. It's an important conversation. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Liz, thank come you. on now. Yeah, this is, um, I, I think we've talked, you know, we talk about a lot of things and it can feel like we're always talking about the same thing. This was like a brand new, yeah. there were so many brand new things and brand new ways of, of um, like new POVs, I think, on, on a conversation um, that is very important. So thank you so much. Thank you both. If you like what you've heard, uh, you should follow us um, and subscribe to our, our, our podcast. Where can they find us? They can find us at menenough.com slash podcast yeah. or wherever they get their podcasts. And specifically go to YouTube so that yes. you can watch it. Um, until the next time, Justin says hello, wishes he was here. Hank, Dustin, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, Liz, I love and adore you and learn so much from you all the time. Same. Same. I and, really love this. Um, we're going to see everybody next time. Yeah, see you soon. All right. Until then, I'm Jamie Heath. I'm Liz Plank. And this is Man, Man Enough. Enough. Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble, in partnership with Cadence 13, an Odyssey company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Maholtra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Anna Saufeld from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kayla Nicholson is our producer, Ashmi Elizabeth Dang is head of marketing, and Susie Landers O'Connell is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.